0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 11, and it's all about Jan van Rieberg's arrival in 1652 and the Amakosa-Koi-Koi relationship. South Africa's modern community is a melting pot of people, and part of that melting story started when the Dutch company, the VOC, decided to build a refreshment station in Table Bay. But it took quite some time to convince the Huron 17 to agree to this plan. Van Riebeck's landing was also extremely well documented. The logs he kept and those maintained by the VOC is a vast repository of the past. We need to talk a little about Van Riebeck. I mentioned a few things last episode, but now we must understand the short, fiery and energetic person more completely. He was lionized as the man who had the vision leading the arrival of Europeans, who came to live in South Africa, but the tale is not as it seems. The real's distinction for running a proper colony fell to later men, such as Simon van der Stel and Hendrik van Riede, whereas van Riebeck never really wanted to remain in Africa at all. He started his career in the VOC in 1639 as a surgeon's mate, which was the lowest of grades on board ship. Van Rebeck had quickly worked his way up to the rank of Honor Koopman, or junior merchant, at the age of 23. Two years later, he was in charge of the VOC's establishment at Tonkin in Vietnam, something we heard about fleetingly last episode. There he made his appearance in the company records of 1643 when he reported an extraordinary Hooger Waterfluden, or Extraordinary High Tides. But not long after his comment about tides, he was accused of private trading, which was regarded as a serious offence by the VOC. Ironically, in a few years, he'd be monitoring his own men to stop private trading in southern Africa, but that was still to come, when Riebeek was sent home from Tonkin in disgrace to await formal sentence, which was to be dismissal from the company's service. Back in Amsterdam, he immersed himself in business, made voyages to Greenland and the West Indies, and constantly hankered after re-employment by the VOC and a chance to make his fortune back in Batavia, the Dutch capital in Java. And so, the opportunity came in 1650, when the directors considered a memorandum from junior merchant Lierend Jansen. We heard about that last episode. Remember, the Roman strants had been shipwrecked in the Cape after the Harlem, and afterwards Jansen strongly advocated an establishment there. The bay was extensive and sheltered, except for winter winds and storms, but Jansen believed ships could be protected if they were anchored properly. There was a freshwater spring near the beach. The climate was admirable. Just to reinforce his memo to the here in 17, Janssen listed the types of food that could be grown. Pumpkins, watermelon, cabbages, carrots, radishes, turnips, onions, leeks, oranges, lemons, apple, pear, plum, cherry, currant and gooseberry. Pretty much all of the above are grown around the Cape to this day. He also suggested that Chinese convicts could be dispatched from the East as slaves, who would then work the land. They are an industrious people, declared Janssen. Most of them understand gardening, and there are always enough of them in irons. No worries about racial profiling back in 1650, of course. He also believed the Koi were ripe for conversion to Christianity, and if the company managed to convert these indigenous people, then perhaps, said Janssen, the VOC trade to India would be further blessed. Now, the company men were reformed Christians, not Catholics. They were Protestants who avoided the kind of proselytizing zeal practiced by the Spanish and Portuguese when it came to business. Janssen declared it was possible to build a small fort and to set up a garden which a community of around 80 soldiers and sailors could till and harvest. The cost? Around 14,000 guilders per year. But look at the savings, he gushed. Ships would be emptier, more spices for the return journey. Fewer sick men would mean higher productivity, and as we heard previously, if the Dutch didn't do it, the English or worse, the Portuguese or Spanish, would eventually get around to the idea. Van Riebeck now played his hand, determined as he was to gamble in order to make his way back to the Far East and its immeasurable treasures. The year in 17 approached Van Riebeck for his view, as he had spent some time with the crew of the Remonstrants in the Cape on his way back from the Indies. So it was that the fiery little man sent a letter to the Heerden 17 pointing out that not only was it a good idea, but that he, Yan, was the person to set up this little refreshment station. It was true, Van Riebeek had the qualifications to supervise such an enterprise, his experience in Vietnam, in China, and in Japan. There was even the possibility of whaling, he added, having spent time in Greenland on whaling ships he should know. When passing the Cape on his way back from India, his fleet had stopped for more than a week at Table Bay and Van Riebeek took the opportunity to wander around the Cape. The land he could see from the Cape Hills was at least 10 miles wide, he said. Then he made a claim that was to haunt him later. It was so fertile, said Van Riebeek, that neither Formosa, modern Taiwan, or the New Netherlands, by which he meant the area around New York and New Jersey, can compare to the wondrous African Cape. Van Riebeek's view was absurdly optimistic, and he would be embarrassed by his rose-coloured spectacle view of this land later. For a start, the Cape Flats were nearly 20 miles wide between the mountains of the Cape Peninsula and the precipitous crags of the Hottentons Holland Mountains. He had only seen both from a distance, and it wasn't fertile. In reality, it was a sandy waste. What's more, he supported Janssen's idea of thousands of Chinese being shipped to the Cape from the east, and that was just pie in the sky. You can imagine the VOC officials frowning at the idea of hundreds more mouths to feed and administrate. That was out of the question. As we'll see, however, the idea of drafting slaves from the Far East would refloat later, which was going to have a major impact on the Dutch colony and on Southern Africa. So van Riebeek was awarded with the assignment to set up a refreshment station, but it was hardly a plum job. There was no increase in his rank. He remained a merchant at the not-too-generous stipend of 75 guilders a month. That would rise to 100, and yet it was a step back into the company to clear his name, and for that, van Riebeek was determined to take whatever pain came his way. The VOC at the same time was determined that the station would not turn into a colony. You must understand that the Dutch experience of colonies up to this point had been terrible. That is not to confuse the VOC ports in Java and the Indies as colonies. They were company landing zones where very few Dutch citizens lived. It is true that the Dutch West Indies Company had made a serious effort to plant Dutch farmers in Hudson Valley of what is now America, but after 40 years, only a thousand had settled there, mostly fur traders. One of these, a man by the name of Kilian van Renslaer, was extraordinarily rich and one of the greatest absentee landlords anywhere in the world at that time. Van Rensselaer owned three quarters of a million acres in the Hudson Valley, but he complained that the colonists were rampant thieves and cared only for profits and pelts. It was literally the Wild West, even though based on the eastern coastal regions of America. Meanwhile, the nearby New England states had shaken off their original company backers and were now pretty much self-governing communities. They had rejected Amsterdam's attempts at controlling them and were less a colony than a collection of independent villages turning into Americans. The Dutch East India Company took note of these failures and wanted profits, not some colonial nightmare where obstreperous settlers wreak havoc. It was even worse in the Dutch-owned companies in Brazil. Many investors held shares in both West and East India operations, which traded in that South American country. But in the very year that Van Riebeek was to travel to southern Africa, 1652, their Brazilian operations collapsed, costing investors hundreds of thousands of guilders. So the Cape must remain an inn on the road to the Indies, agreed company officials, having burned their fingers once too often. Profits were most important. There was business to be done. There was no thought of this enterprise as the first step towards laying claim to part of a continent just yet. All that the directors required of van Riebeck was that he should build a primitive fort made of earth on which cannon salvaged from the Harlem could be mounted to cover the water place for passing Dutch ships. The cannon had a limited range of a few hundred yards. The fort was not exactly being constructed in the most secure position it was overlooked by higher ground and the beach was dotted with fantastic landing places for enemy vessels but it would serve as a useful earthwork against koikoi koi attacks should they arise vegetables and fruit were to be grown while for meat the dutch were relying on the koikoi koi, who herded their livestock across the cape flats a few dozen soldiers would suffice these men would spend some of their time gardening and part of the time standing watch. And being a response group should the settlement be attacked. It is important to note that before he left, Van Riebeck was briefed about the lack of money available to conduct warfare of any sort against the local population. He was also told that he needn't spend too much time and effort trying to convert the Khoikhoi to Christianity, despite the BOC prospectus mentioning many souls would be saved. Each community, it was stressed, should be separate. The Dutch should not fraternize with the Khoikhoi. Van Riebeek was also told, when the work of building the fort and stabilising the garden was complete, over a few years, he would be replaced. For the fiery Dutchman, that would not come quickly enough, as we'll see, because his aim was to head back to the Indies to make money. So, on the 6th of April, 1652, three ships dropped anchor in Table Bay. They were the Goede Whip, and Reicher. It had taken four months from Holland, with only two deaths en route, and one birth. There were 82 men on board the ships and eight women. Yes, women had joined men in this venture, including van Riebeck's own wife Maria, who was highly regarded by the mercenary group. They were a rather motley crew. There were Germans, English and Danish, all after possible treasure and motivated by adventure. They were soldiers of fortune who believed in making as much money as possible and spending it equally as quickly. It would transpire later that the contracts which made the most money in the early days of the settlement would be the butchers and the brewers. Sounds like modern South Africa. None of these soldiers and sailors had arrived with any intention of settling in the wild and distant land, but there were more admirable characters amongst the motley lot. The krank or visitor of the sick, was Willem Weilandt and he was highly regarded by all. There was Hendrik Boehm, the master gardener, the man with green fingers, and Peter van Mirov, who was assistant surgeon. Both Boehm and Valant had brought their entire families out with them, as had Jan van Riebeck. They may not have wanted to emigrate, but the fact that there were some women amongst the men improved the level of civilization somewhat, or else things could very well have degenerated into a Lord of the Flies kind of situation. Van Riebeck's wife was Maria de la Quillier who was referred to as the most perfect woman ever seen. Considering that most of the men were not going to see many women, whether Koi Koi or European, for quite some time, perhaps they were being a tad generous. And yet, she was well liked by the garrison, as many works of history have attested. Within a week of arriving, construction of the fort de Khuduhoop began on a site near the Lisbjörk River. This was going to take a year to build, and the workers, stroke mercenaries, would be sorely tested, particularly by the Cape's winter. It was an earthwork where the walls were constructed of soil taken out of the surrounding moat. Built in the form of a square, it followed the art of fortification that the Dutch had developed during the course of the Eighty Years' War against Spain. It was provided with diamond-shaped bastions at each corner, which could be used to enfilade the walls in between, shooting down anyone trying to rush the earthen structure. A freestanding fortification was built at the rear of the fort, which enclosed the cattle crawl and stables, while a double-story stone building provided accommodation within the walls. Van Riebeek sent about his task with great energy. His ships had arrived in mid-autumn, not the best time to land in the Cape for two reasons. One was the rainy weather in winter and extremely high winds which whipped across the land, the other was the fact that his livestock suppliers, the Koi didn't hang around on the Cape Flats in winter. That was something the Dutch had not realized as the three ships sailed for the Cape. The expedition discovered that the Koi clans had moved off for the season, and their only inhabitants were those referred to as Strandloopers. As you're going to hear, the Dutch constantly had trouble understanding the difference between the Sand and the Koi Koi, particularly when they met tribes of people who were a mixture of both. The first koi, koi that Van Riebeek's party encountered were the Goring Ha-trona, the Strandloopers, who were initially called the San or Bushmen. They were a destitute community living without cattle eking out a living on the beach. The fact that none of the arrivals bothered to learn the Khoi language didn't help when it came to Van Riebeek's group trying to make sense of local affairs. It's by speaking someone's language that you really appreciate their culture, after all. Also living on the Cape Peninsula and the surrounding countryside were the Goring Ha-trona, and the Goochukwa. All told, about 600 people lived on the peninsula in the mid-1600s and the Dutch referred to both of these groups as the Kaapmans or the Peninsulas interchangeably. These people generally lived at peace with each other but sometimes warred with the more powerful Kochokwa, who lived north of the flats. The Kochokwa inhabited the Swatland, which is a fertile undulating plain about 30 miles north of Table Bay which Van Riebeck dubbed Het swatland the black land. That's because the endemic ranosterbos takes on a dark appearance after rainfall. Without fresh meat, rations were reduced to fish, seals, seagulls, penguins, and even cormorants, which apparently are extremely bitter. The small group grumbled and complained. One of the Dutch volunteers by the name of Fuchalai was reported to have lost his temper after being served penguin instead of a hearty Christian dish of beef or pork one night, and he desired the devil take the purser, or a similar curse. For his trouble, Fouchelaya received a hundred blows with a musket butt. Surely that hurt. By September 1652, less than five months later, four Dutchmen deserted. They took four biscuits and fish, four swords, two pistols, and the dog. However, these Europeans were not ready for what the Cape was going to throw at them. This included an attack by more than one rhinoceros and a porcupine, and less than a week later, they were back at the fort begging for mercy, including the dog. The four were duly sentenced to 150 lashes and then made slaves for two years. While all of this was going on, far away to the southeast, the Amakosa were initially unaware that the Dutch had decided to plant their fort on African soil. In the mid-1600s, the Amakosa was still living in the vicinity of the Mbashi River in the modern Transkei, and we're going through a process of major segmentation as several chiefdoms hived off from the Paramount scene. Some of their history was noted in 1554 after the Portuguese ship the Shao Bento ran aground at the mouth of the Mbashi River. The ordeal of 322 of its survivors who walked from there to Maputo has been recorded. Within another 50 years, these would be known as the Amantinde, the Amanguali, the Amambalu, the Imidange and the Makonukwebe, and all would live between the Kai and the Kaiskama rivers. Through this period, the Matkoza groupings were all allying with one Koi Koi chieftain or another against rivals. This led to the Matkoza acquiring a loose political ascendancy over most of those living along the southern coast, as far west as the Breda River. While the Matkoza themselves did not live this far southwest, it's close to modern Swellendam, the Koi Koi chieftains were constantly pressurized to support one or other of the Koi clans. In return for lending military assistance when Koi fought Koi, the Amatosa expected their allies to help them fight other Koi Koi chiefdoms who defied them or refused to pay tribute. Some of their western Koi neighbors bore the brunt of more concerted Amatosa aggression, as you'll hear in later podcasts. Particularly in the early 1700s, when the powerful Inkwa chiefdom of Hintsati, who lived at the foot of the Sneerberg Mountains in Kambudu, were shattered then assimilated as three different Amatosa clans. The Sneeberg or Snowy Mountain Range, includes a large portion of South Africa's Great Escarpment, including the modern towns of Craddock, Graf Reinet, New Bethesda, and Middleburg, the great Karoo of the Eastern Cape Province. A place of intense beauty and a graveyard for the foolhardy. Well, we must end this episode. In episode 12, we'll hear more about Fran Rebecca's struggle to set up a sustainable refreshment station and about the developments to the east as the Anarkoza and other African people became aware of the Dutch at the Cape. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also email me through the website desmondlatham.blog or if it's urgent, contact me through my Twitter account at DesLatham. Until next, goodbye.